Welcome to Major Figures in Spanish Culture, a podcast produced by Fundación Juan Marc. In each episode, we invite renowned experts to sit down and share stories about some of Spain's most distinguished figures who have greatly influenced and contributed to the advancement and richness of Spanish culture. Federico García Lorca, born in 1898, is Spain's best-known and perhaps most beloved poet and dramatist of the 20th century. He was part of a group of avant-garde artists that included Salvador Dalí and Luis Buñuel, and his political views against fascism would eventually lead to his brutal assassination, ordered by one of Franco's generals in 1936. Here to tell us more is Christopher Maurer, professor of Spanish at Boston University. From a country place outside Granada, southern Spain, summer of 1923, a young poet writes to two of his friends describing a work in progress, a sequence of poems to which he's given the strange title In the Garden of Lunar Grapefruits, and which has taken him into a dream world, into a labyrinth of crossroads and of possibilities, and what he calls paths in embryo. He tells his friends he has written feverishly for the past few weeks. My garden is the garden of possibilities, the garden of what is not, but could and at times should have been, the garden of theories that passed invisibly by, and children who have not been born. Write back soon and I'll send you a song from the garden, for example, the song of the boy with seven hearts or the lament of the girl with no voice. I always think of that ontological garden with its diverse forms of being. A garden Federico García Lorca, its creator, called Sonambulistic, his sleepwalking garden. I think of that moonlit garden as embryonic of much of his work. He sings very often not so much of what is, but what isn't of what is not but could and at times should have been, or might have been, or was, and will no longer be. His poetry and theater, his drawings and music, make me aware of absence. In an ode to his friend, the painter Salvador Dali, Lorca once wrote, your fantasy reaches as far as your hands. Although Lorca once declared that a poet must be a professor of the five bodily senses and must open doors between them, And although his work, too, is rooted firmly in the senses, in what he has before his eyes and within reach of his hands, presence often seems to remind him of absence and generate longing. I think of a vivid line from Miguel de Unamuno, a poet Lorca admired. Mis sentidos al infinito abiertas, sangrando anhelo, open to the infinite, my senses, bleeding longing.
Lorca's brutal assassination ordered by one of Franco's generals, his burial in an unmarked mass grave in August 1936 and the early days of the Spanish Civil War, the search for his remains, a search entangled in discussions of historical memory, heightens the feeling of absence and elegy that pulses through his work, a work haunted by death. Federico García Lorca, Spain's best-known and probably most beloved poet of the 20th century, was born in 1898 in Fuente Vaqueros, a village in the Vega, the river plain of Granada. That was a humbling year for Spain. It was the year it lost Cuba, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico to the United States, and along with them its supply of inexpensive sugar and tobacco. Those losses would create an opportunity for Lorca's father, Federico García Rodríguez, a liberal landowner whose profits from the refining of sugar beets would allow Federico to devote himself for most of his life entirely to poetry and the theater without worrying much about a career. His mother, Doña Vicenta Lorca, who had been a school teacher, would encourage him in his writing, always challenging her talented son, the oldest of four children, and often needling him ironically in wonderful letters, not to be content with easy triumphs. The family's move from the countryside to Granada in 1909 put an end to a childhood Lorca sums up in a few words. Shepherds, fields, sky, solitude, simplicity. It also gave rise to a lifelong meditation on the character of Granada, which Lorca often evoked elegiacly as a palimpsest of vanished civilizations, a multicultural Spain destroyed or effaced in 1492 with the expulsion of the Jews and the Christian conquest of the Emirate of Granada. A terrible moment, he wrote, though they teach just the opposite in school. And he added in another interview that being from Granada inclined him towards sympathy with the persecuted. Lorca once wrote that Granada was a city made for music, a city, he said, enclosed by mountain ranges, a city apt for rhythm and the echo, the marrow of music. He was a musician, an excellent classical pianist and occasional composer, before he thought of himself as a poet. In fact, it wasn't until 1916, on the death of his piano teacher, a disciple of Verdi, that he began writing in earnest. Music is present everywhere in his work, in the musical metaphors of his earliest pages, in the dozens of poems and prose pieces he titled songs, ballads, nocturnes, sonatas, waltzes, in the forms of some of his plays, for example, in a wedding scene structured like one of Bach's cantatas. Some of his most beautiful lectures are about music, flamenco, Spanish lullabies, the ballad, the folk songs of Granada. He once boasted that he could play and sing over a thousand folk songs at the piano, and he recorded ten in his own lively, unforgettable arrangements with his Spanish singer, Argentinita. The great composer Manuel de Falla was a friend, a collaborator, an admirer of Lorca the musician, an influence on the way he assimilated Spanish folk song into his poetry. Lorca seems to me the most interartistic, the most intermedial of poets, the author of poems and dramas he stylized as ballads or as liturgy or as romantic lithographs 
or as rotogravure or primitive Italian paintings or black and white photos and of drawings he referred to as poems. It's no wonder his work has been adapted since his death all over the world into every sort of art, paintings, poems, film, flamenco, art songs, symphonies. I've always been particularly fascinated by his very earliest pieces in prose, which have the feeling of a diary, which seem like a window into the worries of what his brother Francisco called Federico's prolonged adolescence. In the many, many pages he writes between 1916 and 1918, he worries over social inequality, the corruption of the Spanish Catholic Church, which seemed to have abandoned its evangelical mission, the almost unbearable beauty of the countryside. Often he writes of el amor imposible, impossible love, and what the poet calls the calvary of the flesh, or the overwhelming tragedy of physiology, phrases that hint at a growing, somewhat uncomfortable awareness of being gay. In 1918, Lorca's parents pay for the publication of a book of prose, Impressiones y Paisajes, Impressions and Landscapes, inspired by his travels through Spain with a group of his classmates from the University of Granada. In 1920, he enters a unique sort of residential college in Madrid, La Residencia de Estudiantes, and his life there will broaden his intellectual horizons and will give him a heightened sense of his responsibility to help build a better Spain. In Madrid, he forms friendships with a pleiad of young poets from Rafael Alberti and Luis Cernuda to Pedro Salinas, Damaso Alonso, Vicente Alexandre, Emilio Prados, and Jorge Guillén. It's a golden moment for Spanish poetry. And all these poets would remember Lorca after his death as his own best work, his own masterpiece, as a genius of simpatia, of personal charm, grace, wit. Mention his name and the sun comes out, Guillén once wrote. During his first year at the Residencia, 1920, he makes his debut in the theater with a symbolist fable entitled The Butterfly's Evil Spell, suggesting that love can strike anywhere, even among God's humblest creatures that a cockroach can fall in love with a wounded butterfly. That lesson, the randomness of love, which Lorca would return to in his work, always remembering Shakespeare, seems to have been lost on the audience. <laughs> Someone out there in the dark called for insecticide, and others stomped their feet in disapproval. Federico, who was listening to that thunder from the dressing rooms of floor below, said it felt like they were stomping on his head. A year later, 1921, he publishes his first book of poems, Libro de Poemas, which had a much more favorable, or at least a much quieter, reception. At the Residencia, a string of discoveries helped Lorca make his verse more concise, or as he puts it, helped him prune the over-luxuriant lyrical tree left to us by the Romantics and post-Romantics. He discovers the humorous aphorisms, the Gregorias, of Ramon Gómez de la Serna. He discovers haiku and the recent poetry of Juan Ramón Jiménez, whom he once identified along with Antonio Machado as one of his poetic masters. These discoveries, along with the lyrics of flamenco and traditional song, offered lessons in concision. 
1922, in a lecture in which he tries to rescue amateur cantejondo, flamenco, deep song, from commercial adulteration, he marvels how the anonymous traditional poet, quote, can extract in just three or four verses the highest emotional moments in the life of man. Lorca's discovering not only brevity, but the suggestiveness of the fragment. One of his touchstones in poetry was the traditional song, the song which, because it's handed down orally from one generation to another, comes to us missing part of its story with gaps or lacunae that generate a certain poetic mystery. Only mystery makes us live, Lorca wrote beneath one of his drawings, and he believed the same of poetry. Only mystery can make a poem live. There are traces of the traditional and examples of brevity, the brevity that leaves room for the imagination for mystery, in an important but little-known book of serial poetry he worked on for years, but which was published decades after his death, a hidden river of poems titled Sweet, S-U-I-T-E-S, in the musical sense, think of Debussy, in which he tries to capture in sequences of sometimes whimsical short poems, aspects of the natural world, myth, uh, as well as some of the metaphysical questions and questions of identity explored in that lunar garden. This is like a quarry of his early verse. He moves fragments of some of the suites to his second book of lyrical poetry, Songs, from 1927. Others led to the book Poem of the Deep Song, published in 1931, a full ten years after he had written it. Lorca's occasional carelessness with his manuscripts, and the time he took between writing a book and publishing it, and his passion for that oral tradition for poems transmitted orally, which was still so alive in Spain, fed the myth of him as a pre-Gutenbergian poet, one who, in his own words, felt horror to see his poems dead forever on the page, in other words, published. Despite that supposed horror of print, in the summer of 1928, he publishes Primer Romancero Gitano, literally First Gypsy Ballad Book, which he himself would describe as an Andalusian tableau, or as he puts it, a vast altarpiece of Andalusia with its gypsies, horses, archangels, planets, its Jewish and Roman breezes, its rivers and crimes. If you've read any Lorca, you probably remember his most famous lines, verde que te quiero verde, green, I want you green, green wind and green boughs, the ship on the sea, the horse on the mountain. In ballads like this one, Romance Sonambulo, sleepwalking ballad, the eight-syllable line of traditional verse is the vehicle for invented myth, for learned allusion, for echoes of traditional song. It's the perfect blend of song and fragmented story, of the narrative and the lyrical, and of striking metaphor which Lorca hunted for in what he calls the nighttime forest of the imagination. Most of these ballads revolve around the marginalized culture of the Andalusian gypsy. The popular success of the gypsy ballads gave him the beginnings of fame in the Hispanic world and a little beyond, but also helped create the myth of a folksy gypsy poet that would pursue him for the rest of his life and after his death 
in Spain and abroad, and would give him what he called the image of an uncultured poeta salvaje, a savage poet. One of those who best understood Lorca's uneasiness over that image was his beloved Salvador Dalí. They had met at the Residencia, and their friendship deepened during Lorca's two visits to Dalí in Cadaqués, Figueras, and Barcelona, where Dalí did the set and costume design for Lorca's historical drama, Mariana Pineda, inspired by a ballad he had heard as a child. The friendship blossomed also in a marvelous correspondence, part of which is lost, and it acquired intellectual and erotic intensity as each drew the other out of his carencia, his own artistic space. Dalí arranged for an exhibition of Lorca's drawings at a prestigious gallery in Barcelona and wrote a review of it, and Lorca encouraged Dalí as a writer and critic. In late summer 1928, that budding critic wrote a bruising critique of the Gypsy Ballads. In a letter to Lorca, Dalí insists that Lorca is tied hands and feet to the old poetry, that his poetry moves within the commonest and most conformist of commonplaces, and that Lorca must learn to free himself from what Dalí calls the conventional ideas the intelligence has forged about things. Criticism like that from one he deeply loved led Lorca to question his own poetics, for example, his belief in the central role of metaphor in poetry. For the metaphor binds a pair of things together, and what Dalí was demanding was just the opposite, a sort of dissociation. In the letter to to Lorca, he declares that the hands of a clock, for example, begin to have meaning only when they stop pointing out the hours, evade the clock entirely, and turn into just, for example, the sex organs of breadcrumbs. It was thanks to Dalí, I think, and Dalí's awareness of surrealism, a movement Lorca never really embraced, that Lorca begins to loosen the reins, the rational reins of the poetic imagination. And we can see this in his next book of poetry and a little later in his lecture on Duende. By the beginning of summer 1929, we can speak of evasion not only as an aesthetic ideal and not only in Lorca's writing and drawing, but also in his life. A number of things made him long for escape. His breakup with his lover, the sculptor Emilio Aladren, his differences with Dalí, and with the hostile and homophobic comments of Luis Buñuel about Lorca and his gypsy ballads. Buñuel, who would collaborate with Dalí on the avant-garde film Un Chien Andalou, and perhaps also the wish to escape the public image of gypsy poet who wrote mostly about Andalusia. In June, Lorca's mentor, Fernando de los Rios, offered to his parents to have the poet accompany him on a trip to New York. They sail on the Olympic, sister ship of the Titanic, and Lorca collides with modernity. He dives headfirst into the racial, ethnic, religious, and linguistic diversity of a city of nearly seven million people, a sight, he says, like no other on earth. All of Granada would fit into three of these buildings, he writes to his parents. Though he enrolls with high hopes in English classes at Columbia University and lives that summer and fall in student dorms, he never gets beyond a few English expressions. One of his friends remembers Schispiel, 
sex appeal. He soon abandons those English lessons and spends his time writing and drawing, seeing film and theater, and exploring the city with a group of Mexican, Spanish, and a few American friends. Lorca's readers often notice the difference in tone between the utterly charming letters of discovery, the enthusiastic letters he writes to his family, and the dark vision that emerges from the book he wrote there, Poeta in Nueva York, Poet in New York, whose protagonist speaks in the first person, often in free verse, in the tone of a prophet or a redeemer or priest. The poet in New York, the, the, the subject of that book, describes himself in one poem as a helpless poet without arms, lost in the vomiting crowd, and in another poem as a wounded pulse that sounds out things of the other side. Lorca's own initial enthusiasm for New York dimmed and darkened after the stock market crash of 1929, October 29, a traumatic event he witnessed in person, mingling with the crowds on Wall Street where he says, a tumult of dead money went plunging off into the sea. Poet in New York, published in 1940, four years after his death, is full of angry denunciation, tempered by a vision of apocalypse, apocalypse as destruction, but also as redemption, denunciation of unbridled consumption, of the exploitation of African Americans whose music, theater, dance, and way of life uh, he admired and wrote about. He strikes a blow for the environment and has damning words for New York's indifference and injuries to nature, the amputated tree that cannot sing, the Hudson River, drunk on oil. As in his early prose, in an ode to Rome from the Chrysler Building, he condemns the Pope and the failure of the Church to comfort the poor and the helpless. I denounce everyone who ignores the other half, he writes. Other, more inward-looking poems record a longing for lost childhood or a lost poetic voice, the cycle, the metamorphosis of being, the, the search for sexual freedom. In a moving ode to Walt Whitman, he parses different forms of being gay and offers a brave defense of non-normative sexuality. Throughout the book, there's the ache of absence and loneliness, a loneliness that shoots out beyond the sleepless city and into an empty sky. As he puts it, there's an ache of empty spaces in the deserted air. One of the most significant aspects of Lorca's trip to New York was his contact with all sorts of American theater, repertory companies, student groups, the Chinese theater, African-American comedy, and perhaps Broadway. From New York, he writes to his parents, we must think of the theater of the future. All that exists now in Spain is dead. Either the theater changes radically or it dies away forever. There's no other solution. During a three-month visit to Cuba, very happy three months, following his eight months in New York, Lorca began writing his own version of what that new theater might look like, a metatheatrical homoerotic drama he titled El Público, The Audience, where social and sexual revolution shake bourgeois theater to its foundations, a work that was too radical for the Spanish stage at the time 
and was just as shocking in its demands for authenticity in the theater and in life when it was produced half a century after his death. Without ever abandoning his poetry, in fact, while writing his Sonnets of Dark Love for Rafael Rodriguez Rapun, one of the great loves of his life, and, and while writing two of his greatest elegies, his lament for the death of the bullfighter Ignacio Sanchez Mejias, and the Divan at Tamarit, an homage to Arab Andalusian poets. While writing those books, Lorca will devote the last seven years of his life to changing the theater radically through the creation of poetic drama and dramatic poems for the stage. He had once said that he didn't want to see his poems dead on the page. Theater, he remarked, is the poetry that rises from the page and becomes human, and on doing that, speaks, shouts, weeps, and despairs. For that dramatic poetry to be heard, for it to exist not merely as drama, but as theater, Lorca hunted for new, more avid, less jaded audiences than he could find in middle-class Madrid. With the help, once again, of Fernando de los Rios, who was now the Socialist Minister of Education in Spain's newborn democracy, the Second Republic, Lorca founded La Barraca, a troupe of student actors who carried classical Spanish theater into the countryside and performed in village squares for those who had never before seen a play. In Madrid, he founded amateur groups and trained young actors from scratch. On a trip to Buenos Aires and Montevideo in 1933-1934 to direct his tragedy Blood Wedding and give a series of lectures, Lorca discovered that his theater could appeal to an international audience and help satisfy what he once derided as the little jaws of the ticket window. Buenos Aires gave him financial independence, and both experiences, La Barraca and Buenos Aires, trained him as director who could mobilize all the elements of theater, music and dance, sets, costumes, which he drew himself, voice, gesture, and above all, the rhythm of the work. His brother once said that he directed Blood Wedding like someone directing an orchestra. In Buenos Aires, he also dazzled audiences as lecturer, delivering a rousing talk on what other poets would perhaps call inspiration or soul, what Lorca calls duende. In Play and Theory of the Duende, a tour de force through the world of Spanish art, and Lorca borrows, transforms, and mystifies an untranslatable term that had been used, though quite differently, in the world of flamenco, duende. And he argues that great art, or at least the sort that most interested him, cannot be created or interpreted or received unless the artist or interpreter or audience wrestles not with the muse or the angel, but with the duende with its strong dose of the diabolical and the irrational, its spontaneity, its connection with the earth, and its brave, unflinching awareness of death. From his play, The Audience, onward, Lorca saw theater as what he called a school of laughter and lamentation, an open court, a tribunal, that could examine an old or mistaken morality and explain with living examples the eternal norms of the heart and of human emotion. 
The double aspect of theater, which we see in Lorca's words, on the one hand, morality, social custom, and on the other, what he calls the eternal norms of the heart, is evident throughout his work. In Bodas de Sangre, Blood Wedding, passion is thwarted by differences of family, of clan, and social class. A second rural tragedy, Yerma, which was roundly condemned by the right-wing press for its uncatholic view of reproductive sex, describes the anguish made doubly unbearable by societal expectations felt by a woman unable to bear a child. Doña Rosita the spinster is about the agony of an aging woman who feels the sting of social humiliation as she awaits the return of a fiancé who has abandoned her. Again, uh, the ache of absence. The house of Bernarda Alba, ruled by a manly matriarch and subtitled Drama of Women in the Villages of Spain, which was one of Lorca's last works, foreshadows the repressive dictatorship that was only months away in 1936. In all these dramas, women's lives run aground on social structures of one sort or another, on prejudices, but it's also true that Lorca's women, his most memorable characters are always women, burn with desire, and like Adela or Rosita, embody the poetic imagination. They yearn in a world of prose for something indefinable, something that lies elsewhere. Lorca's characters always want something, the poet Robert Bly once observed. But the object of desire goes beyond social justice and seems as invisible, as shadowy as Pepe el Romano, Adela's lover in the house of Bernarda Alba. To me, Lorca's theater doesn't merely suggest that society thwarts our desires and instincts and limits our freedom. It suggests, paradoxically, that those desires cannot be clearly identified. Lorca's characters are tragic, not only because society keeps them from attaining what they want, but because they're fated never to fully understand what it is that they want. And maybe it's this expression of longing, of desire, this dialectic of presence and absence, this displacement of the object of desire, that gives Lorca's theater its universal appeal. It's not, as the song tells us, that you can't always get what you want. In Lorca's world, you don't always know what you want, and even if you could get it, you would want something else. It's the feeling Lorca attributes to one of the gypsy characters in his ballads. The pain, the pena, of Soledad Montoya, he says, is the root of the Andalusian people. It's not anguish, because in this sort of pain one can smile, nor does it blind with tears, for it never produces weeping. It's a longing without object. It's a keen love of nothing, with the certainty that death, the eternal care of Andalusia, is breathing behind the door. To me, that pain, and perhaps that death that's always breathing behind the door in Lorca's work, seems emblematic. It's the longing that inspires the Casida of the Rose in his last great elegy, the Divan del Tamarit. The Rose 
was not searching for the dawn. Almost eternal on its branch, it was seeking something else. The rose was not searching for knowledge or shadow. On the edge of flesh and dream, it was seeking something else. The rose was not seeking the rose, immobile in the sky. It was seeking something else. That's Federico García Lorca, so fully present to us in his absence, so memorable in his haunted gardens, so lovingly remembered in all the world in his search for something else. Thank you for joining us on Major Figures in Spanish Culture. See you next time. Thank you.